And Heavenly Father, it must grieve you. It must grieve you enormously to think that um, your children, those that your son shed his blood to save, who are meant to show the world by their love of one another and their love of you, that we don't always do that, that we fail in terms of our willingness to even show up and to gather with one another, that we complain and whinge about things that really are not important, but are subjective likes or dislikes. And Father, we are so sorry that our church is so divided, that there are so many different denominations and they split and they split again. And the world must look upon us and say, my, don't they love one another? Now, Father, please grant to us that we might change, bring repentance in us where there is no love. Help us to love our brothers because the alternative is to hate them and to hate our brothers is to indeed have no part with you. So, Father, this morning help us to hear your word, help us to repent of our sins, Help us to surrender all to Jesus. And by your Holy Spirit, Father, do that work in us that makes us more like him, we pray. Mm. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. That's a serious way to begin your sermon, isn't it? I haven't begun my sermon. Now, got your Bibles open there at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And you'll find an outline in your service sheet. Today's talk, like Sesame Street, is brought to you by the letters I and A. Okay? And to start with, today's sermon really is a matter of internal affairs. I want to talk about matters of the heart this morning, particularly of love. Without which the joy and assurance that we have been talking about over the last two weeks could not exist. Love is central to our joy and our assurance. I have to say personally I'm fascinated with love, absolutely fascinated with it. And my major reason for that is because I want it to be a central aspect of my existence. You have that fascination? You want it to be a central part of your existence? Spend time much thinking about what it is to love others? We don't, do we? Not much time. We're too busy, really. Fascination. Is that too big a word to apply to love? Because a fascination with love implies that love is really complex, doesn't it? If I've got to be fascinated by it and think it, then love is really a very complex thing, isn't it? You might fall in and out of infatuation, mightn't you? You don't fall into love, and you don't fall out of love. That's the way the world might speak about it. We do fall into infatuations. That is true. But love is much more than something you fall into or out of. Indeed, 
Love is a decision of the will. It ties heart and mind together. You make a decision to do it. Oh, what might have begun with an infatuation in a marriage, it's not long into the marriage before you realise that love is actually a decision of the will. The first time your husband annoys you or your wife becomes prickly, you realise actually love is not an infatuation. Love actually is a decision of the will. Will I stick? Or will I not stick? There are some people in 1 John, for example, who were part of the church but didn't stick. They left. And John said, it's because they were never of us. And so as he speaks about loving brothers and sisters, he, he, I believe John has in mind some of those who were there False teachers who snuck in, who really in the end couldn't cope with Jesus and as their leaving suggests, they couldn't cope with their brothers and sisters in Christ either. And in truth, sometimes we're very hard to cope with, aren't we? Is that fair? Some of us are really hard to cope with, aren't we? <laughs> bishop included. In fact, some people tell that when the bishop comes, their happiest moment is when he leaves. Thank you for making me feel so welcome over the past few weeks. Love is a decision of will. Take the story of the father in the park with his daughter. One day while she was playing in the sandbox, an ice cream salesman approached us. I purchased her a treat, and when I turned to give it to her, I saw her mouth was full of sand. Where I intended to put a delicacy, she had put dirt. Did I love her with dirt in her mouth? Absolutely. Was she any less my daughter with dirt in her mouth? Of course not. Was I going to allow her to keep the dirt in her mouth? No way. I loved her right where she was, but I refused to leave her there. I carried her to the fountain and washed her mouth out. Why? Because I love her. It's a good little illustration, isn't it? But I wonder if you can see something of love's complexity, even in a little moment like that. Love longs to give delicacies, but love does not stand silently or inactively when something is wrong and those around have dirt in their mouths. Love does not mean accepting any kind of action or opinion. Love sometimes needs to apply itself to circumstances where desires diverge. Love really gets complex then, doesn't it? When one person thinks one thing and another person thinks another thing, how do we work that out in love? And love is not dependent upon another's attractiveness or right responses. Love is born out of a heart that just can't help itself but to love. How's your heart? Love can be very complicated commitment when dealing with the internal affairs of the heart. And love, I want to tell you, demands integrity's assurances. 
There's your second I and A, if you're following the outline. Some definitive statements are made in 1 John. You may have picked them up if you've been reading 1 John over the weeks we've been together. Last week we saw that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's fairly definitive, isn't it? Three words that speak of God's integrity. God is light. There is no shadow of turning in him, as the hymn writer put it. And if we turn then to 1 John chapter 4, don't forget those three words. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That's more than three words, but remember God is light. As we read then three more words repeated in verse 8 and verse 16, God, can you finish it? Is love. Chapter 1, God is light. Chapter 4, God is love. God's love litters this letter. But look what happens when you put this statement of God's love next to the message of Jesus that God is light and in him there is absolutely no darkness at all. There is, at that point, no wavering in God's love. It is without blemish or impurity. It is perfect. It's love without a dark side. That makes him different from us, doesn't it? Yes? No, you don't really want to admit that you've got a dark side, do you? Can I just put you all at ease? The bishop has a dark side, okay? And I'm not happy about it. Hence my fascination with love. Because I don't want that dark side reality. God's love is without a dark side. Integrity's assurance is all-sided. It is a wholeness. And God's love is whole. It's complete. No matter what God does, his love perfectly addresses everyone and sorry, everything and everyone all the time. Is that good news? It is good news, isn't it? But it's dangerous news, isn't it? Because the implications of that for Christ, for the Christian is that we should not complain about God's love or argue with it when he takes us where we may not want to go. Dissatisfies, uh, dissatisfies us when we don't get our own way. Disciplines us away from that which could cause us sin and rebukes us when we do sin. The implications are we shouldn't be complaining but actually thanking God for his sovereign love and purposes in our lives to transform us more and more into the likeness of his son. So instead of complaining sometimes about God's love, we should simply trust in his love, depend on it, and of course rest within it. No matter what his sometimes difficult love brings for us in life. God our Father is not totally, I have to say, unlike the father of the daughter that we've just mentioned with the bubbler 
and the mouthful of dirt. And he will hold us over the fountain of his living waters, urging us to spit the dirt out because he's got something much better for us in Christ and a really significant joy. And as our Father in heaven, he loves us just the way we are, but he refuses to leave you that way. That's good, isn't it? Because when he first loved you, he took you into his kingdom as a sinful person, didn't he? But he's not leaving you to just keep wallowing in your sin, but it's by his spirit transforming you more and more into his life. I love the statement that God is love because, it's, because it defines the very nature of God. It is not simply that God can express love or be loving. It's much more than that. It's that he can't help himself but to love because that is the settled character of God. And the character as Christians, we can know in verse 15, have confidence of in verse 17, and which removes all fear in verse 18. God's love carries with it the integrity of chapter 1, verse 5. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He's defined like this, God is love. Wouldn't it be good? Wouldn't it be good, don't you think? If people could say, Rick Lewis is love. Adam Draycott is love. That that was the defining characteristic of their lives. Wouldn't it be good if you could say that about yourself? If you think about that, put yourself there. In that little moment, Don is love. Not Don is good, that's the meat truck, isn't it? Mm. Um, so, um, <laughs> Tinnier is good. It'd be good, wouldn't it? But we can't really say that, can we? Because it's not totally true. But it is true of God. God is love. And it's not just some undetectable impulse or emotion in God, this issue of love, but love reveals itself in an incredible account of love in action. There's the next IA. Got it? Incredible account. Verse 9. Got your Bibles there? Look at verse 9. This is how God showed his love. How many times has a person said, I love you, and all you could think was, I wish you'd say it less and actually do something to prove it. That make sense? Wives, for all the husbands in the building, we apologise. Because we husbands are often good at saying I love you, but not all that good at showing it sometimes. I can speak for husbands, I can't speak for wives, so wives, you'll have to do your own accommodation to that little piece of application. No. Please notice here, God doesn't just speak of love, but shows it in verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. I want to say, I think it's impossible, I had this discussion with Adam last night, I think it's impossible to define love. 
You can't define it. In fact, every time you try to define love, the way you do it is by describing what love does. Okay? You might want to think about that later on, see if you can define love. And um, maybe over our picnic this after, at lunchtime, we can actually discuss whether you can define it. But every time you try to define it, you'll actually use descriptions to let us know what you think it looks like. Here, you'll notice that God is love. That defines God's character. But what is love? Well, we can only see it in terms of actions. And God shows his love among us. And he does it this way. Relationally, this show of love can be measured as the Father sends his one and only Son, and the Son who is sent comes. If you want to see costly relational love, here it is. There is no greater love than the love of God, and these two, Father and only Son, have been the terrain of each other's love through all eternity. All eternity. They have never known a moment of broken fellowship as the Father sends the Son. Of course, they would know a moment that I think expresses a broken fellowship at the cross. When for the first time in the whole of the New Testament, Jesus doesn't address God as his Father, but cries out instead, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You want to hold that in mind. Bear in mind the love of the Father and the Son for one another. Bear in mind then the outcome of this is going to come our way. See, the location of this sending is the world, isn't it? The Son is sent by the Father into the arena of God's broken creation, the context of human rebellion against God, a world in which death is the outcome of sin, the punishment on a loveless people. And while we note the relationship and the location of the sent Son, you must not miss the focus of love here. This is how he showed his love. What did it say? This is how he showed his love. Among us. Among us. Among us. Sinful, undeserving us. Loveless. Hating people. This is how God showed his love among us. Extraordinary as Christ's coming is, let's deepen the extraordinary for a moment as we watch the immovable affections of the love of the Father. There you go, another IA. In the worldly context of God's love for us. See verse 10? This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins or the atoning sacrifice. I think in the NIV, which you have in front of you, has the atoning sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Can somebody tell me, if you go to the bottom of the page, where they have the little kind of um, index kind of comments, is that got propitiation there? No. It doesn't. Well, I'm terribly sorry about that. The old NIV had that actually at the bottom. 
so that you knew that it could be translated atoning sacrifice, but actually the word that's used there is the word for propitiation. But we'll come to that. Now I hope you see what I see here in verse 10. Did you see it? This is love, not that we love God. God is not one that meets us halfway. You get that? When it comes to God, it's not God comes to us halfway and you must come halfway to Him. You know, it's the way we sometimes treat others, isn't it? Well, I'll love you if you'll come halfway. I'll love you if you do this. My love is conditional upon you behaving in a particular way. Did you notice what it says here? This is love, not that we have loved God. In fact, he comes the whole ten yards, so to speak, and has to, because the immovable affections of God alone have the power to move our affections that are dead for the world. We are dead in our transgressions and sins, caught up in this world. Our affections were for the world and not for God. And God's immovable, unchanging affections of love come to draw us from our affections for this world back to himself. Listen, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Friends, that is mercy. Mercy, born out of the character of God, whose nature it is to love those who don't deserve it. To step toward a people who left to themselves would actually step away from every advance of God's love. The extent of that love is seen most powerfully in the lengths to which God would go to reconcile us to himself. He sent his son, sent there, to be the propitiation for our sins. That is a strange word that John uses. We saw it last week. We see it again today. And I want to illustrate this word by way of a little fun and proud participation. Okay? This may work. It may not. You might say, don't ever do that again. Right? But Adam is my little helper. And we're just going to do what we do at the cricket. Okay? Um, Adam's going to pull out of his little hat, much to the disgruntledness of the local police and uh, the crowd protection people. And he's going to throw this into the crowd. And we're just going to have a little knock the ball around time. Okay? So see how you go. Get excited about it. I know you're feeling very uncomfortable at the moment. It's 7.30 in the morning. See, go on, keep going, keep banging it around. Okay, wait. Don't hit people in the head. They've knocked it out the door. Nobody really wanted to do it anyway. Alright? Okay. So there you go. Now, I don't know what you what you're doing as the ball's being knocked around, but I do see heads turning. Okay? Um, Adam's gonna bring it up the front. Janine's just whacked the person in front of her. That's the bishop's wife that just hit you in the back of the head. You might actually want to hang on to that one and write it down in your diary, okay? I remember the time the bishop's wife whacked me in the back of the head. Can I have that? Can I have that? Can you carry on? Thank you, Adam, for your help. Um, please don't blame Adam for this. This was my eye. Okay? 
Did you notice what happened the moment the ball was batted on? Attention was drawn to someone else, to the one who had the ball. Propitiation is where Jesus takes the ball, where he takes our sin and the focus of God's wrath moves from you to him. Okay? Is it any one? It's no wonder then that John says in verse 18, got it? Please get this. There is no fear in love. Got it? Sorry, I'm just trying to get. Don't hate it when your experiments don't work. Got the verse? There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. What does love do? The love of God exhausts the wrath of God on our sin perfectly. By his perfect love, removing all fear of punishment. I wish I could get this to release more quickly, but we don't have time. Yes, I should stick a knife in it, that's right. But the kids would be disappointed. But um, I hope you can see my illustration. We bat the ball on, the focus turns to someone else. Where it comes to sin and the wrath of God, it turns to Jesus. What does Jesus do? He exhausts every judgment against you. All done away with. Sin completely dealt with. Such that everything is exhausted at the level of God's wrath. So that there's nothing anymore for us to fear. Is that good news? Amen. I can see a smile. I'm told that 7.30 people smile more than 9.30. Don't people. tell them that. <laughs> Don't tell you that. I'm not allowed to tell you that. I haven't actually been able to tell the difference, to be honest with you, but I can see a lot of smiling faces as we talk about this. It's a joy, isn't it, to know that? Don't you think? It's a real joy. Something to be exuberantly happy about, because that's what joy is. It's to be exuberantly happy in the things of God. I can't do that anymore, but it will empty. And Jesus emptying of the wrath of God is a lot quicker and has been done already. Well, interesting sermon so far? I hope so. Now it gets tough. Because the implications of this must be applied, mustn't it? Now consider the implications applied to those for whom fear has been removed and eternity assured. It's worth a moment now because what 1 John 4 does, it helps you to hunt outside yourself for the resources of God. In fact, in verse 13 you have the resource of the Spirit. 
in verse 14, you have the resource of the apostles. You put, who, who, who give us the word of God. You put spirit and the word of God together, which of course is absolutely crucial. If you go anywhere where they separate the spirit of God from the word of God, then you know you're in the wrong place. Mm. Because the Bible is the word of God, and it is the Father's word, it is the Son's word, it is the Spirit's word. You can't divide the two. It is the Spirit and the word. You'll notice in verse 15 that brings us to Jesus. Three great resources are given to us. Spirit, word, and Christ. But then we're meant to be a resource too. These are the things that you can hunt for outside yourself. But this morning, by way of application, I want you to hunt within yourself to the heart of the matter or possibly the heart of the problem. To reflect on the way we love each other. You see, the challenge is before us in verse 11. Did you see it? Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now we've done the journey with God, haven't we, this morning? God's love, as this chapter makes clear, is selfless, costly, sacrificial, courageous, and agonisingly committed by way of propitiation. Now I don't know about you, but I am uncomfortable with the hunt within. Because the inadequacy of my love for others reflects the distance between myself, not them, but between myself and my God. The distance between me, me and Jesus and my love and his is such an extraordinary distance that I need to spend the whole of my life asking God to work in me to bridge the gap. What about you? Brothers and sisters, we have to learn to love one another. The world watches on. Indeed, I think that passage from John chapter 3 reflected that. This letter reflects it as well. There is a missional component to the world that comes with the way in which we love one another. What I find tragic is... As I discovered last night, there are some 12 different churches in Inverell. There are some seven or eight in Gaira. There are other churches in towns where they keep a number of churches, but none of them can afford a clergy person. None of them could afford a minister because they're in three different places, all too small to be able to do it. But to come together and to love one another might provide the ministry that would be so helpful in a small country town. And why is it not the way it should be? It's because we're factious and often loveless. We don't like to be called that, but the evidence seems to suggest that we are. And I want to ask you today, to make a difference and begin to chill the little stuff and to love one another with the heart of Christ. 
Love we must, but the alternative, I think, is captured in a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, To love all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid entanglements. Lock it safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you in the end can be perfectly safe from the dangers of love is hell. With dirt in our mouths, we are brought to the fountain of living water and washed by the same Father who offered the delicacies of love in his Son, Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, let's stop putting dirt where there should be delicacies and let us love one another as Christ has loved us. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.